Welcome, guys. My name is Jerry Riando, as you were just told, and I am on staff with crew here at JMU. And I'm really grateful all of you decided to come hang out with us this evening. Uh, I'm impressed that on a Thursday evening, you decided to take time to invest in your faith in, the, in this community, and I'm also grateful. So thank you all for being here. We're starting a new series tonight, and the series is called Core Doctrine. And we're going to be looking at, at several areas of core historical Christian beliefs over the next several weeks. Uh, if, you are, if you grew up in the church, uh, or if you are very familiar with, with the Christian faith, I think you're going to find this is not going to be just review. I think you're going to, I think we're, you're going to find we're going to be looking at it from a slightly different angle than maybe you've seen before, and I think you will be encouraged and edified by it. Uh, if you are new to the faith, uh, or you're just exploring the Christian faith, I hope the next several weeks will give you a fairly clear idea of what, what does it mean when someone says they're a Christian? What do they really believe? Or at least we're going to start answering that question. We won't get everything. I think you'll be encouraged partly from the subject matter, but I also think you're going to be encouraged by some of the speakers we have for you all. Um, we are going to have a few staff speaking, but we're also bringing in two guest speakers I want to introduce you to. Uh, so on, let me see, your left, that is Eric Dolce. He's a friend of mine who is a pastor in Washington, D.C., he and I went to seminary together, and we did our preaching classes together, and I was just blown away by how great of a preacher this guy is. And so you guys are privileged to hear from him about what do we believe is true about the Bible, and that's going to be next week. And then on the right is our friend Tim Henderson. Some of you guys have met him. He's spoken at our fall retreats before. I think he also loves his family, even though the picture he sent me doesn't have his family and Eric's does. I think he also loves his family, but he is... I don't want to overstate this. He is, including my seminary professors and other people I know who are very smart, one of the smartest human beings I have the privilege of knowing. He, you wouldn't, he's very, he, doesn't, he doesn't come across as heady, but the more you talk to him, the more you spend time, the more you realize you, are, you, are, you really know what you're talking about, and you have a really great, unique way of looking at the scriptures. And he's going to be talking to us. He's a pastor in Roanoke. He used to be on staff with crew for like 20 years. A JMU crew alum which is exciting, and uh, he is a pastor in Roanoke now, and he's going to be talking to us about the topic of eschatology, which means the study of the end of time. What does the Bible teach us about the end of time? I think you'll find it very interesting. So we also have some great staff we're going to be sharing on some subjects, so please join us over the next several weeks as we look at this topic. We're going to be talking, starting at tonight, and the area of core Christian doctrine we're going to be talking about tonight it may be the most core thing that sets Christianity apart. There's a few things you could argue would fit in that category, but th this is one of the things you could argue would fit in that category, and it is the topic of salvation. What does it mean to say that someone is saved? How does someone become saved? What changes in them either uh, spiritually, metaphysically? What happens when someone is saved? We're going to look at that over the next several minutes. But as way of introduction, this is going to sound like a non sequitur when I begin, but I promise I'll bring it back around. I want you all to think about, I want you to pick two or three words that you would use to describe your relationship with God today. What are two or three words that you would use to describe your relationship with God today? And I'd like you to write them down in some way. If you have a notebook, you can write them down. You can put them on your phone. I'm going to ask you to refer back to them. 
two or three words. These could be, po- I mean, you're not going to share with anyone else. These could be positive words like good, strong, fulfilling, exciting, powerful. These could be negative words like frustrating, distant, painful, disappointing. If you don't believe in God, it might just be uh, non-existent, right? That might be the word you choose. Two or three words. Describe how you feel about your relationship with God right now. All right, hold on to those. Tonight, we're going to be looking briefly at a passage that I talk about all the time, and I refer back to all the time, but I actually basically never speak on in this setting. And so I decide it's finally time, I haven't done this in years, that we, in this setting, talk about the passage that I think is the most compact summary of the entire Bible. Um, It's the most compact summary of the story of the entire Bible. And so if I were to say, you need to pick, this passage is 10 verses long, 10 verses that better summarize the teaching of the whole Scripture, I don't think you can find 10 better verses than the ones we're going to look at tonight. Uh, there's a sense in which I think of these, this passage, even though it's not physically in the middle of the Bible, as the center of the Bible, because I think it summarizes so well the rest of Scripture. Some theologians throughout history have called one particular phrase in this passage the two most important words in the Bible. They've said that that phrase is the two most important words in the Bible, and I want you to see if you can guess what those are as we read through them. I could talk more and more about this. I think every Christian should memorize these passages. So if you're, whether you're in the scripture memorization or not, you might want to add this one to something you might want to accomplish in memorizing these words. The passage is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I forgot my Bible. I'm going to go grab that. Well, you know what? It's going to be on the screen back here. So I will just read it off the screen. We're going to have it up here. As way of context, This uh, passage was written by a man named Paul, who was a leader in the early church. He was a missionary and a church planner. He planted a church in a place called Ephesus, and then moved on after some time to plant another church, and now he's writing a letter back to that church. And we're going to read a snippet out of that letter. And and Ephesus is a city in Asia Minor, or it used to be at least. Um, Here is what Paul says. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I just messed up two things already, so I apologize. The first thing I messed up is you're never supposed to turn around on stage and face away from the audience, so sorry about that. The second is I was supposed to tell you we're going to have a Q&A time after this. And so there's a phone number that, can we get it up there? So yeah, if you have any questions as we go, 
Uh, you can text this number and I will answer one or two of the questions, but I promise I'll answer every question that comes in over text or we can grab a cup of coffee later. So the earlier you send your question in, the more likely you'll probably be to, to have it selected. All right. Uh, the number is scrawled by my terrible handwriting on that board over there. And so if you don't write it down, you can see it over there later on. Okay, so this passage we just looked at, I think you may have noticed that there is a sort of whiplash moment in this passage where the, the theme, the, um, the tone of the passage switches from wildly negative to wildly positive. And that, that change, that, that moment, that switch occurs at the very beginning of verse 4. And the reason for this is Paul is describing two different conditions that people experience. Verses 1 through 3, Paul is describing the condition of someone who does not have a relationship with Jesus. And then verses 4 through 10, he's describing the condition of someone who does have a relationship with Jesus. So if you're someone who is a follower of Jesus... Verses 1 through 3, this describes your life before that moment. And verses 4 through 10 describes your condition after that moment. So here's what I like to do. I actually would like you, if you don't mind, to yell out. I want you to start looking at those first three verses and tell me how does Paul describe a person's condition without Jesus? Dead. That's a really strong start there for Paul. Right? I have to admit, I read this and even though I, I, I really do believe that the Bible teaches is true, I still find myself cringing sometimes at some of these words. I think, Paul, dead? Did you really have to go, like, just start off all the way over there? Right? Couldn't you have said something like, without Jesus, you're, uh, in, you're sick? You're spiritually in danger? Maybe, at worst, you're spiritually dying. But I think Paul selected the word dead for a purpose. I think it was supposed to be shocking. There's this finality to death. If someone is sick or injured, there's always hope you might be able to help them, but when they're dead, it's done. It's finished. There's a hopelessness, a finality, a helplessness to death. Dead people cannot improve their situation, and no one else can improve their situation for them. What else does Paul say is true about our condition before Jesus? Disobedient, okay. What else? Children of wrath. What would you say? Living in sin. Yep, all true. There's a really weird phrase in there. Did you guys catch it? He says that you are following the prince of the power of the air. It's the weirdest part of this passage. I've, I've spent a lot of time studying this passage, read a, a lot of commentaries on it over time, and I can tell you two things for sure. Everyone agrees the prince of the power of the air is the devil. Nobody agrees on why he's called the prince of the power of the air. There's like as many theories as there are commentators. You can come up with your own theory. But whatever it is, Paul is saying something shocking here once again. He's saying without Jesus, people are following the devil. Not confused, not lost, not misguided. Again, I think, Paul, are you overstating it here? And I think he would say, no, I'm saying exactly what I intend to say. I forget who said it. Maybe Will said it. He says that later, he says that you are actually what you are a, he says, in some translations says children of wrath. Others say object of wrath. But the point is someone who is going to receive God's punishment for sin. 
I have to be honest with you, and maybe you feel the same way. When I read this passage, at best, I wish, I wish it wasn't true, right? I believe it is true, but I think, Paul, this, is a, this is, seems like an overly negative perspective of the human condition. Or is it? When I observe the world, my, my own life, my own inner life, and I observe the world around me, sometimes I wonder if maybe this is actually the best explanation for what I observe. Right? The, we live still in a world that is absolutely filled with suffering, most of which is suffering inflicted by some people and other people. We live in a world that is still absolutely dominated in many ways by injustice. Maybe the reason that is is because maybe Paul was onto something here. Maybe our condition is actually pretty bad. And maybe Paul is describing it well here. Maybe this is, explains why I am ashamed of many of the thoughts that go through my own head. Because this is really my natural condition as a result of sin. Paul shifts, though, in verse 4. And here is where we see this two-word two phrase that theologians have sometimes called the most important phrase in the Bible. But God. Now, your translation might... Some translations, which are wonderful translations, have sort of reordered the sentence to make it sound more like a, 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 a human sentence that like an actual person would say because the Greek syntax is different than the English syntax. But the, the sentence actually begins with, but God. You see, you were dead. You were following the, the devil. You were destined to receive God's wrath. But God stepped in and saved the day. And then in verses 4 through 7, he, he just is profuse, throwing adjective after adjective to describe what our condition is with Jesus. The first thing he says is that we were made alive. Clearly, this is paralleling this idea that uh, we were dead spiritually, and now we are made alive. Do you know what this means? This means that what salvation means is not that Jesus healed you. It does not mean that Jesus helped you. It does not mean that he gave you a great moral example, though he did. It primarily means that he resurrected you. You were dead, and now you are alive. If you hear nothing else this evening, I want you to hear this. Paul is telling us here that being a Christian, being saved, is not about becoming a good person. It is about becoming an alive person. I, I personally rejected this when I first heard this idea. I was in seventh grade, and I was sitting in a Burger King in Mechanicsville, Virginia, uh, at this Bible study. Some of you guys are from Mechanicsville here. And I, uh, my youth pastor asked us, what is it like to become a Christian? What is salvation like? He said, is it more like you were, like, let's pretend like being lost is like uh, being lost at sea, right, is becoming a Christian more like a boat comes by and Jesus throws you a life preserver. He helps you. You are, you are, you are in danger of drowning. He helps you out. Maybe he even brings you on board and cleans you up and gives you a good meal. Or is it more like you had actually already drowned and died and Jesus swims down, brings you up, and brings you back to life? And I said, I think it's like the first one. I think it's like life preserver, right? Why? 
Because I didn't think when I examined myself spiritually that I needed someone to make me alive. I just thought I needed someone to help me out. I knew I wasn't perfect. But Paul says, no, if you are honest with yourself about your situation, you're not just spiritually sick. The Bible teaches that you're spiritually dead without Jesus. He goes on to say that another benefit of, of, of being with Jesus is that he raised us up with him in the heavenly places. He raised us up with Jesus in the heavenly places. This means basically exactly what it sounds like. He raised us up to heaven. The problem with this is the tense. Did you notice that? It's past tense. He says, Jesus, past tense, raised you up to heaven when you were saved. But that's not actually true. I'm not in heaven right now. And you know what? My experience of this world right now is not heavenly. Right? I experience um, sin in my life. And then I experience the effect of other people's sin in my life. I experience depression. I see horrible things going around, mass shootings, injustice, pandemics, right? My experience of this world is not what I would describe as heavenly. So why does Paul say, past tense, you were raised up to heaven with Jesus? Did he just forget? To, it, it, it would make more sense, I think, if he said, um, if you're a Christian, one day you will die, and then you will be raised up to heaven. But he doesn't say that. He says past tense. So hold on to that question. We'll come back to that. Why did he say that? And then he says, in case we think he forgot how to use the future tense, he says, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There's a future component to being saved. There is good things coming in the future for you, right? And, and probably referring to the world or the life to come that he's describing as gracious, as kind, as immeasurably rich. The best is yet to come, you might say. And finally, verses 9 through 10, to add to the confusion of what's going on here, he, tries, he makes this distinction that is sometimes hard for us to grasp, that you are not saved by doing good works. You're not saved by accomplishing good things. You are instead saved to do good works. Very, very important distinction. Your good things you do are not the thing that calls you to be saved. Instead, they are the result of having been saved. So, let's summarize some of the confusion here. Before Christ, we were dead, not dying. When we were saved by Christ, he raised us up to heaven in the past, but yet I'm still here on earth. And we were not saved by our works, but somehow we are supposed to do good works as a result of being saved. So, I want to show you an illustration that I have found helps me understand these concepts really well and many other concepts of salvation. So let's throw this chart up here on the board. So this is just a regular old X, Y axis. And so on the, the bottom is the X, right? I haven't done classes in a long time. The X axis, we're going to measure time. Specifically, the time, you can go to the next slide, the time of your life. So from like when you were born to whenever you're going to die, hopefully that's like a really big number of years, right? And on the y-axis, we're going to measure something called righteousness. And we're going to pretend we can measure righteousness. We can't. But we're going to pretend we can from 0 to 100%. Let's define our terms here. We know what time is, but what is righteousness? Well, at least one really good way to define righteousness is to say right standing before God. Right standing before God. Think of it as a legal term. If you are in court, hopefully you guys don't have a ton of experience being in court, but let's say you are, 
and the judge says you're in good standing in the court. What does that mean? It means you don't owe the judge anything. They don't owe you anything, right? Um, and so you are, you're in good standing with him. Yes, the same idea of righteousness. To be righteous means you're in good standing before God. Okay, and so again, we can't actually measure righteousness, but let's pretend we can. So what we're going to do is try to track a person's righteousness through their life. And this is an inexact science. All illustrations fall short, but try to track them here. So let's see the next slide. All right. So this is like, it's trying to show a person's life before they knew Jesus. And the question that is going to inevitably be asked is, how righteous are you before you're a Christian? Where, where should this line be? And the short answer is, I actually don't know if I can answer that question perfectly. I know you're not 100% righteous. As the Bible clearly teaches that we all fall short of God's standard. But I, 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 I don't think you're quite 0% either, because though the Bible teaches that we've all been affected by sin in every part of our body and every part of our being, it also teaches that all of you were made in the image of God. And as a result, we are still able, even without Jesus, to reflect some areas of God's nature and do good, righteous things. In fact, I think there's many people who don't know Jesus that are a whole lot more righteous than me in a lot of ways, in the way they live their life, in the way they reflect God. But for the purpose of this, I'm putting it kind of far down. I think that's probably fairly true. But let's say you're going through your life, you encounter Jesus. The cross is supposed to show you the time that you came to know Jesus. The question is, what happens to your righteousness when you come to know Jesus? Well, there's a very real sense, the Bible teaches, that you become righteous. You go on the next slide there. Yeah. So there's a dotted line here that goes up to 100%. And then I should have put an arrow at the end of that line because that line is going to go on forever. When you came to trust in Jesus, there's a very real sense in which you became righteous. And that uh, event is called justification. That's the theological term for this. And I would define that term this way. Being declared righteous. The wording there is important. Being declared righteous. Not being made righteous. Being declared righteous. Again, imagine you're in a courtroom. And let's say you're charged with some crime. And the court decides to declare you not, declare you not guilty. Does that mean that they made you not guilty? Or they made you innocent? No, they didn't. You may have still committed that crime. You may not have. But they've said we don't have enough evidence, we're going to declare you to be not guilty and treat you as if you were innocent. That is what God does in justification when you trust in Jesus. He declares you righteous. He says, I'm going to treat you as if you were perfect. And I'm going to keep doing it for all of eternity. I'm going to treat you as if you were perfectly righteous. And you get all the benefits of that, including being able to go to heaven. And um, I'm going to treat you that way. But any of us who have made that decision, know that that doesn't mean that we actually start living that way. Let's see what, like, what, what might a Christian's life look like in terms of their actual righteousness. There's some ups and some downs, right? There's seasons in our life where we feel like we're really following God well. And there's seasons when we're like, I'm so stuck in this area of sin or doubt or whatever. And there's these peaks and these valleys. But the Bible teaches us that we should expect, as followers of Jesus, to see a general upward trend in our life with ups and downs, sometimes huge ups and huge downs, this general trend. And there's a theological term for this trend. It's called sanctification, which I'll define as the process of becoming righteous. 
is never completed in this life. We never become perfect in this life. But it's something that God does in us and through us. And another way to think of sanctification is it's becoming what you've already been declared to be by Jesus when you're justified, when you're saved. Right? You track with me? One misconception I want to make sure you don't hear is sometimes we think that top line is what God does for us and that bottom line is what we do for God. That's not true. They're both things that God does for us. The reason that we're able to live lives more and more like like Jesus and more righteous is because the Holy Spirit is working in us. Okay, so what then happens when you die? Hopefully a long time from now. Well, there's a very real sense in which those lines connect. And this is called glorification. This is called glorification. This is actually being made righteous. So you see these, these three steps here, justification, when you trust in Jesus, you're declared righteous. Sanctification, you are being, you're becoming righteous. And glorification, you are finally made righteous. You know what this means? It means in heaven, whatever those sin areas you've been struggling with, you're not going to struggle with anymore. You're not going to struggle with looking at porn anymore. You're not going to struggle with hating people in your life anymore, right? It's going to go away. You know what else is going to go away? Which is, even, which is just as good of news. The effects of sin that have been hurting us in our life are going to go away, right? So our world is broken. All of the pain that we feel and experience in our lives and our loved ones experience are directly or indirectly the result of living in a world that's been broken by sin, right? Why is there a pandemic? Well, not because God is punishing specific sins, but diseases entered the world because the world was broken by sin. Why do we struggle with, with depression, Right? Not because it's a punishment for your sin, but because parts of us are broken as a result of living in a sinful world. And that's one of the results of that. And those are things that are going to eventually go away. They won't have the last word. And so let me connect this to our passage. Right? So we were confused. Why did Paul say that before you knew Jesus, you were dead in your sins? Well, because before you knew Jesus, you were less than 100% righteous and had no hope of closing that gap by your own power. But when Christ saved you, he declared you to be righteous and he made you alive. Why does it say past tense that you were raised up to heaven? Well, I think he's talking about this justification line. There's a very real sense in which it's, you are as good as seated with Jesus in heaven. It's as good as done. Because you are, the Bible describes you as being in Christ, and he is with God in heaven. So you might as well be there with him, in a sense. And what does it mean that you're not saved by good works, by doing good things for your community and, for, and serving God, but you're saved to do good works? I think that's describing this line of sanctification, right? We, we don't, that, that has nothing to do with, with whether we're accepted by God. That was already determined by justification, but now He's helping us live lives that are more and more in line with him. And finally, he says, there's this immeasurable riches of grace he's going to show us at the end. I think that's glorification. So, what does this have to do with the topic of salvation? Well, let me ask you this question. What part of this graph illustrates salvation? I think the temptation would be to say that first, that first upward line, justification. That's what it means to be saved. And I'd actually disagree with you. I think the Bible teaches that this whole graph is what it means to be saved. Being saved is not merely being forgiven of your sins. It's this whole package of God 
Yes, forgiving your sins and declaring you to be righteous, but it's also the process through your whole life of God helping you grow and become more like him. And it won't be completed until the day that you are with him in heaven. All right, I'm way behind my notes. I forgot to turn all my pages. Okay. Um, so where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us in a very awkward situation. We are currently, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are in this awkward place between that first dotted vertical line and that second solid vertical line. And that is a tough place to be. You have tasted what it means to know God, and you have a relationship with him. You can talk to him. He, he, he listens to you. He wants good things for you. He has promises for you, but you've not yet reached the second line, which means you're still dealing with sin, sin in your own life, and the effects of other people's sin that's hurting you. It's a hard place to be. Theologians have called this the already, but the not yet. Get that? The already, but the not yet. Have you been saved already? Yes, but not fully. Not meaning it's, not meaning it's incomplete or like, like lacking anything, but there is a time when you will subjectively experience that to a greater reality in the future. You get that? All right, go back to your two or three words. Look at them. What two or three words did you select? I'm betting that whatever two or three words you select, you, you can tell me if I'm right about this or not, I'm betting 90% of you picked words that were describing that sanctification line. I'm betting 90% of you picked words that are describing that, that lower line, the sanctification line is up and down, meaning that if you're in a, a peak right now, you probably picked really happy words, right? If you're in a valley right now in your faith, you probably picked really crappy words. Maybe you picked the word crappy, right? I mean live streamed. I got to be careful about that. Sorry. Um, like my parents are watching this, you know? Um, Right? You get that? You're picking the words based on this lower line. And you know what? That, that's okay. You're, it's okay to describe that line, but you're not answering the question I asked you. The question I asked you is to tell me, describe your relationship with God right now. And you want to know what? That lower line has nothing to do with your relationship with God right now. You know what determines how your relationship with God is objectively right now? It's that top line. You see, if you trusted in Jesus, the words that describe objectively your relationship with God are words like perfect, complete, totally finished. Because Jesus has already declared you to be righteous, and he said, I'm going to treat you for all eternity like you are. You know what that means? He loves you as if you were 100% right, as if you were perfect, as if you've never done anything wrong, as if you were worthy of being uh, approved of in every single way. That's how much he loves you. That's how he appears. That's how you appear to him. Now, it's okay to like describe this lower line, but what you're answering is a different question. You're answering, what is your experience of your relationship with God? And our experience ebbs and flows. Sometimes I really experience the fact that God loves me, and sometimes I don't right? So what's the application? I've been going on for a long time. The application is this. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to challenge you to live in light of that top line, not the bottom line. 
I want you to live in light of that top line. I want you to define your reality, not in light of the bottom line, but in light of the top line. Because, look, I pet most of you are dedicating an enormous part of your energy, physical and emotional, to trying to prove that you are of value, worth, and have significance. To try, trying to, I mean, why do, we, why do we get so stressed about our grades? Because we think our value lies in it. Why do we get so stressed about our appearance because we think our value lies in it? Why are we so upset if we feel rejected in a relationship? Well, at least partly because we think it determines our worth and shows whether or not we're worthy to be loved, but it does not. If you're a follower of Jesus, only one thing determines that for you, and that is the fact that Jesus said, you are my beloved, you are perfect, and I will always treat you that way. Always. The most important eyes in the universe look at you and are pleased. They smile. God's face towards you doesn't have an ounce of anything but joy and love. Not any disappointment. Not any frustration at you. Whatever it is you're thinking, well, Jerry's not thinking about that thing. You know what? Whatever that thing is, it is of lesser reality than that top line. Jesus died for you. So if you are a Christian, stop trying to earn your own value. It doesn't mean like stop trying to get good grades. It doesn't mean stop trying to live a moral life. Try to live a moral life. The Bible says do that, right? But don't do it because you think if you don't, God won't love you. Or you'll be of less value, less worth, less significance. All right, that's one application. Two, application, if you are just exploring Christianity, you don't know what you've decided, here's the application. I want you to at least understand one thing. If we talk to you about why we think you should consider be, accepting Christ, being saved, right? we're not asking you, we're not trying to tell you we think we know a way to make you a better person. It's not what we're saying. We're saying something very different than that. We're saying we think we know a way to make you a spiritually alive person. Because quite frankly, there's many, many people who don't follow Jesus who are people of better integrity than me. Who, who just outwardly live better lives than me. I, 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 to my shame, right? I should be doing better. And so I can't tell someone like that how to be a better person. All I can tell them is how to be an alive person through Jesus. Um, all right, so in conclusion, Jesus Christ lived a life that was 100% righteous, but he suffered on the cross as if he were totally sinful so that you could be treated like you are 100% righteous. If this is intriguing to you, if you'd like to know more about this, I would love to connect with you. Um, you can grab me after the meeting. I, I try to make myself available as I possibly can. I would love to talk. But we're now going to transition to uh, some questions. Yeah, I went way over. I'm sorry about that. Uh, let's give a round of applause here to our MCs. <laughs> Also, fun fact, the number you're texting is my number, so hello. Um, my name's Audrey, by the way, if you want to put it in your phone for future reference, because yeah. we're going to be doing this a lot. Um, all right, so question. 
what's the difference between glorification, like we saw glorification and death, and glorifying God in our everyday life through our actions? Ah, that's really good. All right, the question was, what is the difference between glorification and glorifying God through our everyday lives and actions? Huge difference. Because when we are living, trying to live lives that are, are in line with the Bible and represent Jesus well, what we are doing is giving glory to God. We're trying to show the world around us that because I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm trying really hard to represent him well. And that glorifies God. That makes God look better to people around us. But glorification is when God glorifies you. And that sounds like heretical or something, right? We're supposed to glorify God. But at the end of time, God is going to raise you up. The Bible says that we're going to be reigning with Jesus. We're, we're treated so much like Jesus because we are, God took everything good Jesus was and said, I'm going to treat you like you had all the good things Jesus had. And, and that means in order to do that, he has to glorify you. He has to put you in a place of honor where you're going to be with God. I, I hope that makes sense. But that is, that is the unbelievably scandalous good news of the gospel that God glorifies us by trusting Christ. Sorry. Okay, do we have time for another question? I don't know. I, I don't know who's in charge Anyone? of that. Yes, cool. Okay. okay. Uh, okay. Um, what does God think about the bad things we do as Christians? Is he unhappy with us when we sin? That's a good question. What does God think of the bad things we do as Christians? Is he unhappy with us? So, there's a, this is a nuanced answer. Is God happy when you sin? No, God is not happy about your sin. It's not something he wants for you. It's not something that glorifies him. It's not something that uh, he delights in. But that's a different question than what does God think about you after you've sinned? Do you understand? One question is what does God think about the fact, like about your sins? The other question is what does God think about you after you've sinned? The answer to the one question of what does God think about your sins is he doesn't like them. They don't make him happy. He wishes they weren't there. He'd like to help you be sanctified so you do it less. But what does he think about you? Oh, he loves you. He delights in you. He's not at all disappointed with you. Why? Because his view of you is not based on your performance and your good works. It's based on that top line of what Jesus did for you on the cross. So, great questions, guys. If you had any other questions, send you can ask me later. But also, uh, uh, she'll text me any of the questions that she got, and I will, I'll text you later. Thanks so much, guys. Let me pray for us, and then we'll transition to the band. All right. Uh, Father God, thank you so much for who you are and what you have done for us. Thank you that you have saved us and that this salvation is more than just being forgiven of our sins and let off the hook, but it involves a lifetime of being made more like you and eventually a death that will make us fully um, fully fully righteous, fully like you've already declared us to be. We pray that you would help us to live in that reality. And for anyone who has not yet experienced that reality, pray that you would draw them to yourself. In the name we pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in and listening. If you want to find out more information on what you heard, you can check out our website at jmucrew.com.